Hello. Good afternoon, everyone. Hello, my name is Vivian Kim. I serve as the Vice Chair of Training and Development for Resident Staff Program. On the behalf of the Housing and Residence Life Program at UVA, I just wanna wish you guys a very warm welcome. We are so, we are so excited to have you all here. Um, the last lecture series, as its name suggests, is a tradition at the UVA at the university that invites UVA's finest faculty to present as if it were the last lecture that they could ever give. Um, we hope you enjoy this event. At this time, please welcome my assistant vice chair, who has worked tirelessly to curate this event and recruit our wonderful speakers for tonight, uh, Mariah Hendrick. <laughs> Um, I just want to echo Vivian in saying thank you. Thank you so much for being here. I hope you enjoy it. Uh, and with that, I'm going to introduce our first speaker. Uh, Dr. Michael Levinson is the William B. Christian Professor of English here at UVA. His interests include 19th and 20th century transatlantic literature and the history of liter literary theory. Professor Levinson really received his bachelor's degree from Harvard College and his PhD from Stanford University. Uh, he's also led summer programs in London for over 20 years and has spent the last fall several fall semesters abroad with UVA's London FIRST program. He's a former chair of the English department and the founding director of the Institute of the Humanities and Global Cultures. He's been awarded numerous grants and fellowships for his writing and has lectured all over the world, but of course his most important lectures take place right here at UVA. Uh, his class, Global Cultural Studies, is one of my favorite I've ever taken here, and I know dozens and dozens of students who would say the same. Um, probably some of you are here in this room. His speech tonight is titled, The Once and Future Human Being, Our Species on the Threshold. I'm incredibly excited to hear from him, and I hope you are, are all too. So without further ado, please join me in welcoming Professor Levinson to the stage. Thank you. I'm okay. Thank you, Mariah. Uh, it's good to be here, not only because of the honor, but because of the unsettlement. It unsettles me to uh, gather thought at the end of term, end of the academic year and to speak as if it were really the end. The last lecture, it unsettles in a good way, the right way. And you, here you are, you came away from pressing tasks and you must have come out of curiosity, that central human virtue. Thank you very much for coming. We're all at a threshold, the calendar says so. We feel it in the pit of the stomach when we think of what we're going on to do later tonight and it's the thought of thresholds that stirs me up this evening stirs me even though I know there's something wrong with standing up in front of people, lecturing at them, perched behind a lectern as though I held some truth to deliver, only if you're very good. I never get over the feeling of awkwardness. I feel it now because I know very well that there's a universe of light that's dark to me. If I stand up here anyway, that's because it's right to be humble, but wrong to be shy. I believe in taking the risk of thought. And what's especially risky and inviting about tonight is how, in a way, this has to be a lecture about lecturing. That's the gig, isn't it? It's for a last lecture, you have to admit you're doing it, which turns out to be something I believe in, too. I, I just like letting myself be seen trying to struggle for the truth. I like to be seen showing my commitment to the task of thought for the service of life. You might think it uh, tempts you to be an egotist doing a lot of this uh, lecturing thing, but I don't, I don't think so. 
what I've learned is how it breaks the ego down. So, all right, let's go. April now, but back in winter, I was talking with a group of students at an evening event. Our subject was personal change, how we experience it, live it through, how we understand it, how we make sense of it if we can. As years pass, I asked the students there, I don't know if any of them are here tonight, but I asked them to bring a photo of themselves from 10 years ago. I did two, it was more than 10 in, in my own case, and we each stared at our younger eyes trying to find ourselves in the picture. And that night, the students said many, many haunting and memorable things. One thought that kept coming back was this feeling that then, at age 10 or 9, they could see that they weren't anxious or self-conscious about the sweatshirt they were wearing or the haircut, some amazing haircuts, or the goofy smile. They saw that in their younger selves, this relative indifference to how they talked and looked. But now in college, they were saying they couldn't imagine living in the same way or carrying themselves like that. Here, I know you know what I'm saying. You watch yourself, watching yourself. It's not bad. It's not wrong. It's growing. It's just there's no more escaping the inner eye, the monitor in the brain. And then that evening, we turned around and we thought about the future, 10 years into the future. Could we do that? And it turned out to be surprisingly difficult for all of us. How would we think about that self then? What would it feel like to be then? We all found it hard to picture that, inhabiting ourselves in the future. We had a glimpse, but it surprised us how hard it was to project till then. So since that good evening, I've been wallowing from time to time in all the ideas that came up. They led to new thought, I think pretty risky thought for this evening, this last lecture. It's a great essay by the wonderful philosopher Thomas Nagel that comes with a catchy title, What Is It Like to Be a Bat? In fact, the essay is about the immediate sensation of being alive and aware. It's something Nagel points out, you can't get from the outside. No matter how much you stare at a photo, or you count the pulse, or you analyze the blood, you miss the sensation, the experience of being here now. That's the bit with the bat. We know how it uses sonar and flies at dust and snags insects in its webbing and hangs upside down. But no matter how much we know about bat life, we don't know what it's like to be a bat. Nagel wants to think very hard about that phrase, being like. What is it to be like something, like a bat, like us? And that evening back in winter, when we looked at ourselves from 10 years ago, I'd say that was the sensation most of us felt. We couldn't quite remember what it was like to see the world through those eyes at that angle, with that attitude. Yes, it was the same person, all right, but it looked different to be that person. Myself, back then, at 10. I'm not saying we thought we were bats, we recognized ourselves, but we felt confusion, unsettlement. We were the same but different, and weren't sure what it was like to be that person. How did it feel to look from underneath that silly hat with that foolish grin? And all right, so it changed. It happens to everyone. But the thought it got me thinking, and what I can't stop thinking about, is not our 10-year memory, 
but about the change ahead for all of us, I mean our species on our planet. Because it's spring and it's green and it's warming, it's tempting to ignore the tremors in the air. And it's right to feel the thrill of it all in Charlottesville in the spring. It's good to sing out in full voice. It's also right not to fool ourselves. Not to fool ourselves, first of all, about the planet, the heating, flooding planet. Too much ocean near Bangladesh, too much desert encroaching in Zambia. Harder rains, melting ice. Even when we sing, and we will, and we must, we're singing under strange skies. We need to remember the skies and the waters and the trees. But in the spirit of the twist, I want to turn on Nagel's essay, being like a bat, being like us. I mean to ask a question almost too big for the mouth. What will it be? Not just for our blighted planet. What will it be for us to see ourselves changing almost out of recognition? Not the mere funny difference of how we looked 10 years ago, but a difference in what it's like to be human. It's really only recently that we've come to the full realization, humanists and scientists, philosophers and journalists, that we're approaching unprecedented times when we can begin to remake the thing that we are. Don't flinch, because it's coming. Right now feels like a funny video on a YouTube channel or a joke at a party. But pretty soon we'll have to face the fact that we might be growing into a newer humanity. It's not here, but it's soon. The change we might make in the very texture of everyday life. The taste of food, the need for sleep, the sound of music. It can make you dizzy to ponder the question, but it's wrong to hide and hunker down and pretend the ground isn't shifting because it's shifting all right. The snipping and, and stitching of our genes, the clever machines that will soon overrule even some of our strong decisions, the interventions and adjustments mean that the very idea of a human nature begins to waver. So much of our thinking for millennia has been to understand the nature of humanity. And now we're approaching a time when it seems we might try to decide what will be. Already, we face choices in what we, wa what we want, being human, being us. Part of the choice making is easy, I think. End the painful diseases of childhood, do that first. Cushion the blow of aging, do that second. Bring lucidity the demented, show depression the door, and the balding head. Suppose our skin could shimmer in all the colors of the rainbow. These are the cartoon decisions, easy to pose and to make. But you don't have to think for too many hours the way I have before you realize the further issues are about as profound as they can get. After we become better looking and more confident and clever, what do we want our deeper wants to be? Should we, for instance, just erase anger from our emotions? Should we always think of others first, never think of ourselves? Is there a time when it might be better to be 
more passionate than more generous? How much pleasure do we want anyway, and how little pain? Shall we make children who always only obey their parents? Some of these possibilities are notional, hypothetical, others are near. A few are already happening. What's clear is that we're on the threshold of a threshold. Already last year in China, did you notice a research scientist stepped in it, made genetic changes to babies in the womb to create a trait that would give immunity to HIV. The motive was good, the outcry was global and intense. How dare the scientist ignore ethical guidelines? How dare he take the step on his own without consulting colleagues around the world? Fair questions, but the implications widen. Sooner or later, a generation from now, or two or three, we will begin, in part, to recreate ourselves, and then no doubt, in larger part, we're bound to start, but where should we stop? At first, it will be minor and local, like changing a light bulb, a smart home becoming the smart body, a serotonin drip to keep low feelings away, implants to keep up muscle tone, a sharper memory. Just last month, a Scottish woman named Jo Cameron was identified as someone who lived her entire life, 71 years now, free of the sensation of pain. One of two known individuals with this genetic mutation. She feels no pain when she wounds herself. She has no scars when she heals. They're a flutter in the gene community, as they should be. Again, we don't know how, and we can't, get yet, can't guess yet, but if it happened in the happy life of Joe Cameron, then we can only expect that it could happen again, again, and again. A change in our biology that would set us free of pain, well, that would be a difference. What would it be to live like that? And all right, it's not something that's going to happen over the summer break, and you shouldn't get giddy yet, but it's not too soon to bear down on momentous questions. Whenever the change comes, it's going to be sooner than you think. Do you know the playwright Chekhov, who died in 1904, whom I revere, and who wrote that Cherry Orchard, so supreme, and a few other great plays? He means so much to me, Chekhov, because as a doctor, he knew he had to tell the truth. And as a writer, he knew how hard it was. His plays always show people suspended between past and future. They can't live the way they have. They know that. Everything's changing beneath them and above them and in them. But they can't live in the world to come either. It's not here yet. Not so far away, but too far for them. Characters in almost every Chekhov play have this moment when they talk about the life disappearing and the life ahead. A phrase that keeps coming back hauntingly, is 100 years from now or 200 years from now, they think in this wistful, hopeful way how in 100 years people will be kinder, freer, happier. And then they, they wonder if they'll rem be remembered in their own right, in their own struggle. 
in that other remarkable play, Uncle Vanya, the good Dr. Astroff, sees dying patients all day on a day that ends with a railway worker dying in his arms. And then he says, I sat down and closed my eyes like this and thought, will our descendants 200 years from now, for whom we are breaking the road, remember to give us a kind word? I'm never not thinking of that sorrowful speech and thinking of Chekhov himself, who also wondered if in, in the future, a hundred years later, someone would spare a kind word for him. And it knocked me over a while ago, 15 years ago, when I realized exactly a hundred years have passed since he wrote about a hundred years passing. I was living on the day, in the moment at the time, that he was reaching out to touch. And here I was looking back at him, just as he imagined, and yes, looking back with gratitude and pity and sorrow and reverence. It's infinitely moving to me to think of Chekhov dying far too young, but reaching out to 100, 200 years ahead. Part of what makes it moving, if you're a bat like me, is it means you can't help thinking about our situation in these terms, too, about the quickening changes that it's now wrong to ignore. The floods and the droughts, the genius machines, and the rewiring of the body force us to think like Chekhov. How will it be 100 years or 200 years from now? Well, stewing in these thoughts, really ever since I heard last month about Joe Cameron and the pain-free life. While stewing and pondering this lecture for you, I came across a dissertation just written at Rutgers, just finished. It's a study in ethics, and it has the good title, On the Overwhelming Importance of Shaping the Far Future. It comes from a simple kernel of a brilliant idea. One of those ideas I'm saying we shouldn't forget, even in green April. Beckstead, that's the name, Beckstead holds that life is likely to continue, even, even on a hot planet. It will continue life, some form. It will continue for millennia upon millennia. It's likely, if you make the calculation, that there will be trillions of beings trillions who may still call themselves human, and they have a claim to happiness too, just as we do on the 25th of April, 2019. We always talk about the near future, the next generation or the next, our children's children, we like to say, and that's right, and of course we should. But Beckstead reminds us that we shouldn't deny what's almost certainly true, that some will survive even the worst planetary scenario, and that the prospect of those trillions makes a claim on our lives here. Now, you might shrug because you'll know you'll never see them, the trillions to come. But that's the strength of these Beckstead thoughts. How dare you be indifferent? How dare I? They're going to be our successors, however they look and whatever they eat. So the ethical thrust of this recent thinking is that with so much future happiness at stake, 
And with our new powers in the, these days now, we have the power to create effects overwhelmingly large. It's one thing to worry about 2050, I do. But Beckstead is saying, think it all the way through. It's the many multitudes to come, the countless multitudes to come, whose happiness will depend on decisions we make now, this generation, and the next. That puts a tremendous burden on this moment in history. I think a burden as great as any in the human story. A burden and, of course, an exhilarating chance. So putting the thoughts together, as I've been trying to do these days, we're approaching a time when we'll have the ability to rewrite much of what we call human nature, to rewire our inmost stuff and pith. It will happen even as the climate shakes and shudders, burns and floods. We don't know what they will be like, the successors numbering in the trillions. We can only reach out to them as Chekhov reach to us. But even if we can only half conceive them, half picture them, we know they have a right to happiness too. And because there are so many, the claim is immense. And then because we're living at this unprecedented time, especially you, you students, you're living at the unprecedented time because of the climate and the bioengineering and the intelligent machines. Because of all that, it's down to us. It's down to you, really to face up to the overwhelming importance of shaping the future. And more dizzying thought, not just to shape future happiness, but to shape the beings who can enjoy it. Everything points to the fact that we live in threshold times. Or as I wanted to say earlier, on the threshold of a threshold, that's where we are. What happens to the oceans and the forests, what kinds of machines we build, how we wire and rewire ourselves, the decisions made now and soon will be fateful. It's not that there won't be other thresholds. Who knows what it will be like a thousand years from now. Maybe the bats will be in charge. But a sense of threshold now to concentrate our minds, even when we sing with the immediate joy of it all, opening faces to the April rain. I want to see the occasion of a last lecture, as if it really were a last lecture, but not only for me, for you too. And to think what it would mean, what it could be if we all felt that we were arriving at the last of something, that we are the last of someone, and also the beginning of someone else. Can we be better, less shameful, more wondrous? Can we make ourselves better and still be fully human? Can we do that with your bright, hopeful eyes? I'm looking at you. It's good to be looking at you and to concentrate on this moment. What is it, after all? An evening in April at the end of term. But it makes me think of Kierkegaard. You too? The simple great insight from Kierkegaard that we live forwards, but we can only understand backwards. How true and how difficult. My own life, my own life as professor and lecturer, 
is about understanding backwards. To understand the present by grasping as much of the past as I possibly can, including the past of 10 seconds ago when this sentence started. All we can know is what has already been, eons ago and just now. The point of reading until your eyes tear, thinking as hard as you can, talking and listening, listening and talking, is to understand as much of our humanity as there is. This is looking backwards, as Kierkegaard sees it. Looking backwards at the whole human enterprise, the trouble as well as the glory. No one individual can know more than a sliver of a fraction. We all need to look backwards together. And oh yes, you have other things to do, me too. But there's no escaping the need to know our humanness now. It's what we have to offer the future. It's good to know in itself, but also this is what I'm hammering. The task has become pressing. Now when we have to live as if we're approaching a cusp, we have to live as if it's fallen to us to reconsider human nature, as if our moment, our generation, was a supreme moment and a fateful generation. I'm trying to tell you the truth, and I'm also telling a story. The story's another way to tell the truth. Suppose, for instance, that none of it happens. The machines stop getting intelligent. Maybe they'll turn stupid. And maybe gene science will come to a dead end when the scientists realize that the best remedies are also the worst diseases. And maybe life, hard life on a heating planet, will slow progress to a crawl. And it turns out Jo Cameron ends her pain-free life but has nothing to teach us. Could be, but in fact, unlikely. For me, the crucial point is that we've arrived at a time, like it or not, when we have to act as if it all could happen and everything mattered as if it were for us to invent the future for millennia. How thrilling and how awful the prospect. It can seem demonic or heretic, heretical or overreaching. Who are we to be creators of anything? We haven't made paradise on Earth. What do we know? All true, what we know is only our understanding backwards. And what we can really do for the future is just to bring it the gifts of the whole human enterprise, to sift through the deposits of our humanity, to see what's good or right, what's best or at least better, less painful, more radiant, less cruel, more tuneful. You know very well what it's like to want to improve you get home late at night, and you're brushing your teeth, and you're thinking, I wish I were funnier. I wish I didn't get tongue-tied. I wish my hair would stay in place. It's good to think about being better, as long as you're gentle with yourself. And that's how it should be, I think, for the way we think about the future, our species' future, the human beings to come. 
that we want to improve, to make us funnier, also more serious. To improve because now we have the tools and also the obligation to the trillions. But let's not dream of splendor in strong, sleek humans with ACE DNA and a faster chip implanted in the neck. Let's aim for joyous times on a cooling planet, but let's also give the gift of our imperfection. We all think we want to be graceful, especially when you're young. We want to catch the light at just the right angle. If you're a guy, you want to sling your jacket over your shoulder, just so. And if you're a woman, well, I'm not sure, but I think you want to be poised and self-possessed. Good for you. But you know, the other day, Tuesday it was, I was in Starbucks in a long wait for a short coffee called Tall, when the student in front of me knocked over a sign. One of those person-sized signs that you see in Starbucks, they like to put it in your way. She jumped, grabbed the falling sign, tried to put it back. I helped. But I also watched how she blushed and then laughed and then turned to her friend and looked over her shoulder to see who else had noticed. And I thought, I want clumsiness for myself and for the future. I don't want this dream of being smooth and graceful. We human beings are at our best, really, when we're clumsy together. It's clumsy to give a last lecture, which is the reason I like it. Who knows what's really next, after the last, what it will be like for the bats and for us? Speaking just for myself, I'm up for it. Taking the deep breath, walking with others who will then walk after me. All of us striding along while looking backwards, bumping into things as we go, while we wrap a human gift with awkward fingers. Thank you.